This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So welcome this evening. As Sharon mentioned, we're starting a new series, but it's not necessary that you be to one in order to come to the next one. If um, other folks come at later times, that's fine. But they do. Um, the, the talks we're going to have for the next five weeks all relate to the title of this series, which is Balanced Practice. And this phrase, which we're going to explore throughout the time here, so um, I don't need to try to explain it right up front, but it's, um, or maybe I will. (laughs) But the idea is that there are a lot of instructions in practice and a lot of things that we engage with and ways that it starts to unfold that have complementary aspects to them probably one of the more common questions I hear, actually, as a teacher is, well, the instructions are all about letting go and just, you know, being non-reactive to anything that happens in meditation. Don't I get to do anything? Where's the role for activity? This is a life. I'm supposed to be doing things. So there's, there's a perceived conflict between doing things, and letting go. My assertion is that there aren't as many conflicts in practice as you think, and that this balanced practice idea is about understanding that there are times for one thing, times for another thing, and also that some of those seeming paradoxes aren't actually once one takes a broader perspective. Uh, Things that look different can become the same with a, with a wider view. So there's sort of both of those things going on. And this series is going to explore certain dimensions of balance, if you will. Um, so if you want to know about the letting go and the action, that's next week's topic, actually. <laughs> uh, tonight we're going to... Um, we're going to dip our toe into this vast topic and, and have a somewhat different focus on um, the, the title written on the flyer was Faith and Reasoning, I believe, which is, was my original title. I've now changed it to Faith and Inquiry, and you'll see uh, there may be not as, maybe that's more appropriate for the way I'm going to talk about it. So I want to first mention maybe just a little bit about this word, balance. I don't think balance is something that is static, like the static opposition of two forces, like the balance between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> you know, that's not exactly what's meant in practice. We don't. Um, it's not so static like that. On the other hand, it's not. Um, balance is not that you achieve some state that's so calm it has no forces in it, and therefore, you know, sort of the balance of zero energy, if you will. That's not what's meant either. Um, 
nor is balance kind of a doggedly middling way. Um, like, I'm always just going to put out the same amount of effort, regardless of what's happening. Um, sometimes, you know, there's more and sometimes there's less. So it's not, this is not the balance of mediocrity, <laughs> if you will. Instead, um, we're pointing toward a dynamic balance. Something like, say you're standing on one leg. If you, the first time you do that, it's a little awkward if you don't naturally have a lot of balance or practice doing that. And so maybe you have some gross movements back and forth and maybe you have to put the, foot, the other foot down once. Um, but over time, with some practice, you can make finer and finer movements, right? You could learn to stand on one foot for extended periods if you put your mind to it and your body to it. So something like this is a little bit how I see Dharma practice, is that at first there's a lot of wavering back and forth, and I certainly know that my own path, I go a little too far this way, and then I correct a little bit, oh, a little too far this way. You know, it's it's just a process like that. Um, I don't know, I can't say that over time you're going to get to perfect balance and be able to stay there. I don't think that makes sense. I think a human life is a little more dynamic and unpredictable than that, and that we're always going to be knocked off balance in certain ways. Uh, Maybe it's like standing on one leg while riding a skateboard. (laughs) So there's that aspect also, the, the part that we don't control, where the skateboard is rolling along certain terrain. But I think we could say that there's always the possibility of moving toward balance and of understanding what the situation is that we're in and finding a way to balance the various things that are happening. And that's a little bit what we're talking about here, the wisdom of knowing when to cultivate and when to let go, when to have act on faith and when to use inquiry and reasoning. Does that make sense generally? You understand kind of what's meant by the word balance? Okay, so we'll start with the topic that we're exploring tonight, the area that we're going to explore. And this one um, has to do, I think I'd like to frame it as having to do with our attitude in approaching and engaging teachings. Okay, so how do we relate to instructions that are given from teachers, from Dharma talks, from things we read in the suttas, if you read the written discourses of the Buddha. So these things certainly play the role of guiding and shaping our understanding and our behavior and our practice. And there's different ways to approach them. And we'll use different ones at different times. So the first might be called, I used the word faith in the title, but I know that word can be, you know, can have associations for people. So um, please consider also that other other words like trust or confidence um, that are sometimes more palatable. Um, this is kind of a constellation of terms uh, around a, a word in Pali, the language that the Buddha that the Buddhist discourses were first written in. That's called sata, which um, which really means you know to place the heart upon. It's actually. Uh, a devotional kind of phrase, and it's a verb. So this word faith, or sadha, doesn't mean blind faith, 
But it does include a sense of trust or willingness or openness to just do what the practice asks of us. Um, This is the attitude that the teachings or the teacher might be wiser than us (laughs) and that we should just let the process do its work on us. So, for example, if your teacher says that you should bow 108 times before you sit on the cushion, would you do it? You don't have to answer. This is just an internal question. Would you do it if your teacher said that? This would be really good for you. You should do this. So adopting this attitude of faith would mean that you did it. You you just said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. You don't add your opinion about it. You don't try to analyze it. You don't try to change it or play around with it or check for results after each time. Instead, um, it's sort of humble, is that you just do it and you wait to see what the results are. We don't always do this, I know, but I'm proposing this so that you can feel what it's like inside to touch into that quality of the heart. My father practices transcendental meditation. He's practiced it for almost 50 years. And he has followed the same instruction that whole time, as far as I can tell. Um, He doesn't do it with a group. He doesn't go check in with the teacher. He never really got into that. Uh, But he got the instruction, got his mantra. He loved it, sat down. He's been doing that every day for 20 minutes uh, with the same instruction. The practice has changed. It's changed him. The process has worked It's not like it's the same, you can't do the same thing for 50 years, it's going to be different. But as far as I know, um, he he hasn't really played around with it much. He then went on a Vipassana retreat and discovered that you're allowed to play around with instructions and that changed everything for him. But (laughs) I think think it was really important. I mean, I I think more people could benefit from following the same instruction for 50 years. Anyway, consider that, consider that. So there are times in our practice, and there are going to be phases of practice, where we really do have to do things that we don't know the reason or the result. I can speak from experience that there are things that have unfolded in my practice where I didn't really know what was going on, um, and that really required a sense of trust to keep sitting on the cushion, keep doing this. Wow, what is coming up? But I trust that if I sit through it, if I just keep doing the instruction that says, come back to the breath, don't go off on the thought trail, if I just keep doing that, it will change. Something will work through. And it does. It really does. Sometimes it can get a little uncomfortable practice. Um, If not from a teacher telling you to bow 108 times, just from the practice itself. (laughs) Sometimes your practice is going to demand something of you that you weren't expecting and that you're not totally convinced about. So, you know, this is when this heart quality can come forth. I know um, another teacher who talks about how, how do you know who your teacher is? And he says, your teacher is the person you will listen to even when you are completely crazy. <laughs> I think it's interesting. I think if we have zero faith, nobody has zero faith, but if we're in a state where we don't have any of this quality of sadha, I don't, I don't think we'll progress very far. You know, I, really, I, don't, I think we're asked to give something up in every moment of practice. 
So I want to talk a little bit about uh, um, where this comes up in the teachings of the Buddha. You know, he actually talks about this process and this need for faith uh, at, at various times in the written discourses that we have preserved. So here's one where he's talking to monks. So he's talking to people who are declared followers of the Buddha. I don't think this would apply to someone who was not uh, hadn't made that commitment. But he's um, he's talking to monks about uh, about the fact that they violated one of his rules. And he has this rule that you're not supposed to eat after noon if you're a monk. Okay, the monks don't eat dinner in our tradition. And so these monks, however, decided that um, that wasn't a very useful rule for them, and they were eating in the evening. And he discovered, Buddha discovers this, and he um, he isn't very happy about this. Basically, he tells them um, this is the way. Not eating afternoon is the way to be free from illness and affliction, and to enjoy lightness, strength, and a comfortable abiding. And they say, oh, we eat afternoon and we also experience uh, Ill- freedom from illness and affliction and enjoy lightness, strength, and a comfortable abiding. So we don't really have a problem with this. And, um, and there are these two leaders who have said this is okay. And so um, they ask why they, should, you know, why they should give up the benefit of eating in the evening because it's a, a benefit that's immediately visible, visible here and now. Why should we give it up for something that's going to be achieved only in the future? That's the classic argument um, that, that the skeptical mind can make against faith, is to say, why should I wait for something that's going to happen later when the practice is about the here and now and I see that this is a benefit for me right now? Why should I restrain? Why should I uh, just trust and open? And so the Buddha is displeased. <laughs> and he describes a path that begins with faith in the teacher, and he chastises them for their lack of faith. Um, implying basically that their path isn't even going to begin. He says, um, and that what he comes back with, he, sa- he says that the disciples are haggling. He says, haggling is not proper. Um, what you're saying is, if we get this, we will do it. If we don't get this, we won't do it. So he's saying that they're bargaining with the practice about um, you know, whether they should follow this rule or not. So... Essentially, he's um, he's saying that there's there are times when you need to just give up and trust the teacher and trust the process, and you don't have to know why every rule is is there. Okay, so that's one. This is in the in the written teachings. It doesn't apply in every case. I'm going to give examples where he speaks against that also, but just be aware that this is in there. He also criticized, however, an overly he also criticized an overly rational mindset, you know, one that is um, very much about uh, logic and making sure that everything, uh, all the questions are answered and everything's tied up neatly. So there's a monk called Malankya Puta, who um, is kind of philosophical. He's in several suttas and. He demands to know the answer to various philosophical questions before he will undertake the teachings of the Buddha. So this is a scenario where he uh, he says, "If you don't, um, you know, I, I came here to learn the answer to these ten questions, and he, he, I won't go through all of them, but he lists these ten. And then um, 
uh, but the Buddha is also annoyed by this. So here's somebody else who doesn't have much faith. You know, he's, say, he's saying, until I, I'm not going to follow your teachings until I know the answer to these various philosophical questions like, is the universe finite or infinite? You know, um, is the body the same as the mind, or is the body different from the mind? You know, these, he felt that this was really important, and unless he knew this, he couldn't practice. So the Buddha says, "This guy's already a monk." So the Buddha says, "Was that the bargain when you uh, took your robes?" And Malankyapuda has to admit that it was not. Uh, he did not. The Buddha didn't promise that. So then the Buddha makes a beautiful analogy um, to this overly demanding, overly rational way of approaching practice. And he, the analogy is to a man who's wounded by an arrow. Okay? And so the, um, the man gets hit by an arrow. His friends and colleagues um, bring a surgeon to help him. And the man says, I will not let the surgeon pull out this arrow until I know whether the man who wounded me was a noble Brahmin or a merchant or a worker. I will not let him pull it out until I know the man's hometown, his physical qualities, the type of arrow, the type of bow. It goes on and on. If I read the whole thing, it would take several minutes. And the the exaggeration is there for a reason. Okay, Um, And so... You know, we don't maybe have people wounded with arrows on a regular basis in our society. But what about people who demand of meditation that they read, that they have to read all the neurological studies about it beforehand? I don't know if I should sit down for half an hour and be quiet unless I've read a bunch of papers that say that this is really going to, this actually reduces stress when they do MRIs of people. Okay, now I'm convinced. Now I'm willing. You know, or. Uh, compassion training. I don't know. Does that really help? I'm going to read a few scientific papers about that. I mean, I'm making a little bit light of this, but if you seriously demanded that all of that was true, it's not so different from this person who uh, is declaring that he needs to know the answer to all these philosophical questions uh, before he's willing to undertake meditation. The analogy, by the way, is to the fact that we're the one who's wounded. You know, we're suffering because we're not living our life as wisely as we could. We're suffering because we have attachments and clinging and we don't understand how to live with wisdom and compassion. And we're, we're actually, I mean, the Buddha looks at us and sees us as people in the emergency room. <laughs> and he's saying, here, this is the medicine. And, and we don't do it necessarily. It's meant to be a pretty poignant, powerful example. Um, and you can say, well, this, you know, this man is crazy. Doesn't he realize he has an arrow sticking out of him? Why wouldn't he just let the surgeon pull it out? Do we realize the arrow that we have in us? So the Buddha concludes this interaction with Malankyaputta after telling him the thing about the guy with the arrow, the analogy, by pointing out that, that he, the Buddha, doesn't teach philosophical theory. That's not his purpose. He teaches people how to end suffering. And he gives then a teaching on the Four Noble Truths. He says, that's my aim. I don't, I'm not going to answer, I don't know the answer. He didn't say he doesn't know. But he says, I'm not going to answer your questions about the universe, your questions about the body and the soul, your questions about what happens after death. I'm here to end your suffering. Do you want it or not? (laughs) 
I'm being a little blunter than he was, but the suttas are pretty blunt. So this is, um, so this, there's this idea through these examples I've given so far of just take the medicine. You're not wise. That's the problem. <laughs> it takes a little humility to admit that. And then we just have to trust that we're really going to transform if we do this, and it may take a little while. So it's, it's worth reflecting in what ways we're demanding to know things or have certain assurances uh, before we're willing to follow the instructions or before we're willing to give ourselves more to the Dharma. Everyone's done quite a lot to get into this room, by the way. This is not a, meant at all to, uh, as a criticism. There's a lot more people who are not in this room tonight <laughs> than who are. And it's a, a sometimes quite a journey to get to a meditation group. So I applaud everyone who's here and, you know, and, and the work that you're doing. And we're still asked also to say, what more, you know, how much more could I offer to the Dharma? Where am, am I holding back? Or what parts have I shielded off and am not trusting enough to open to yet? So the Buddha, however, did not consistently demand some kind of capitulation. I'm now going to flip to the balance. Um, He wanted actually to foster people who are self-reliant. He was not very appreciative of what we might call in our culture obsequiousness. People who really fawned um, and who didn't didn't become self-reliant in the practice. He valued people trying to, trying to figure it out for themselves, um, even if they made some wrong turns along the way. Making the attempt at practice was you know, very important. So you know, one, one way that this is seen in the written discourses is that most of them are about people who come to the Buddha with questions. That very format in itself means that what the Buddha wanted, what he, you know, his means of teaching was that people came and asked him things. That means they were engaging. They, they had done something they didn't understand. They came with a question, and he always honored people's questions. He loved that. He wanted people to be digging in, inquiring, finding things out. So obviously this mode of learning was important and valued in the, in the Buddhist tradition, and still is. There's a lovely sutta called the Kalama Sutta, which is the setting is that there are some people who um, have heard a lot of different spiritual teachers, not unlike we have here in the Bay Area, actually. You know, there's more than you can count. And they say things that sound kind of similar, but not always. And these people who lived in a border town, so a lot of people came through, um, they had heard a lot, and the Buddha came through, and they were getting tired of all this. And they weren't followers of the Buddha, necessarily, but they were spiritual inquirers. They were interested. And so they said to the Buddha, all these people come through, how do we know which ones are telling the truth? You know, we want to know, uh, but we can't tell, because they, they all say something, and they all say the guy who came last week is wrong, and I'm telling the real truth. And then the next guy comes and says, that guy was wrong. What do we do? And the Buddha first says, it's normal that you would be confused in a situation like this. So he acknowledges, yes, this is a cause for doubt, hearing a lot of different things that don't make sense, that are contradictory. And then he tells them something important. He tells them how they can figure it out for themselves. He says, 
Don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability, or by the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. When you know for yourselves that these qualities are unskillful, these qualities are blameworthy, these qualities are criticized by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. And then he says the flip for wholesome, when you know that these things are wholesome, are praiseworthy, etc., then, um, and when they're adopted and carried out, lead away from harm and suffering, then you should do them. It's really, when you listen to it, you think, well, of course, <laughs> that kind of makes sense. But if you look at the whole long list um, of what he has said is not a valid way to know, you may find some things on there that you rely on. Biological conjecture. Do you figure things out rationally? Yeah. And of course we have to in some aspects of our life, but he's saying regarding your spiritual life, logic and inference and rationalism, not, such, not so reliable. But then he turns right around and says, um, don't go by thinking this contemplative is our teacher, so it's not just the teacher says it, so I'm going to do it, which is what he advocated in these other suttas I talked about. So this is the part where people start saying, well, this is inconsistent. Hang on, we're going to get, <laughs> we're going to unite it all. Um, and also, he says, um, you know, don't go by analogy, by scripture, by tradition. So the fact that everybody else does it, probably not valid. The fact that we've always done it this way, this is a common one, especially in companies. If you don't think companies have a religion associated with them, we've always done it this way. This is how we do it. Of course. He says that's not so reliable. So what does he say is reliable? He says, you do it. You check. He says, when you know for yourself, so you've done experientially, you've checked. When I do these things, they lead to harm. Well, then I shouldn't do them. Uh, When I do these things, they lead away from harm. They lead to joy and ease and freedom. Oh, so I should do these things. So he talks about the experiential quality, and then I'll point out that it does say one of the things that people should use is these qualities are criticized by the wise or these qualities are praised by the wise. And so it's not only your own internal view. Um, This is not uh, creating my own religion by following exactly what I believe and what I think is true. Why? Because once again, you're not totally wise and so you can't quite completely trust. So you check with the wise. So there's this balance You hear the balance? Um, Yes, it's experiential, and check with the wise. He understands that we're in a predicament here. We're not free, that's why we need to practice. We're not totally wise, so we don't quite have the ability to select the perfect teacher or select the perfect practice, and yet we have to do something. We have to do something. So he says, well, you, you just... See for yourself how it works out. And if it doesn't, and this is this quality of we, we try something, and if it looks like we're going a little off to the left, then we just bring back to the right. Going too far to the right, <laughs> we start veering back to the left. It's a process. Yeah? So, you know, we're encouraged to act, to go ahead and act, but act with awareness. 
and discern if something to lead, leads to harm or benefit. So we are to investigate. This is the quality of investigation or inquiry. It could be called reasoning, but it's a special kind of reasoning. It's reasoning informed by wisdom, not only the rational, deductive, logical mind. There's another... I like the images in the suttas. So there's another sutta where he talks about... um, He's he's conversing with some Brahmins who at the time were people who relied on a long oral tradition of memorizing... um, texts and rituals and performing rituals, very um, stylized, structured religion, and they believed that if they got all of that exactly right, then good things would happen, basically. Um, And so in one of his incisive images, he depicts the followers of the Brahmin oral tradition as a line of blind men. (laughs) So um, he... He says, you know, the one in front does not see, the one behind does not see, etc. Um, let me give the exact, exact quote. Suppose there were a file, of bl- a file of blind men, each in touch with the next. The first one does not see, the middle one does not see, and the last one does not see. So essentially he's saying, and this is in response to a question from a student, um, and he asks the student in response, have any of your teachers actually experienced what they teach about? And the student says, well, no. This is just, we just learn this from the people before us and then we repeat it. We don't experience it. And so the Buddha then has this analogy of the blind men because um, they haven't actually experienced it. And then the Buddha uses that to say that he is a teacher who teaches direct experience. You know, um, it's not speculation. It's not blind faith. So on the one hand, we have the need to give ourselves over to um, the practice and just say, okay, I'm going to bow 108 times before I sit and see what that does. You feel the beauty and the surrender and the humility of that. And at the same time, we're not to just do that without any reflection. We should have also the quality of inquiry, of making sure that what we're doing is, in the long run, leading away from suffering. These two qualities are needed at different times, perhaps. Bhikkhu Bodhi um, wrote in an essay of his, when we try to determine our own relationship with the Dhamma, Eventually, we find ourselves challenged to make sense out of its two seemingly irreconcilable faces. The empiricist face turned to the world, telling us to investigate and verify things for ourselves. So this is this second thing that I talked about. And the religious face turned toward the beyond, advising us to dispel our doubts and place trust in the teacher and his teaching. So this is this giving over. So one way to resolve this that some people do, is that you just pick one. And you say, I'm this type of person. This is what I'm going to do. I don't think it works very well in the long run. It can work for some time. Probably a more mature approach is to learn to balance them. And this is actually supported in the suttas also. So I've given examples from the suttas that favor each of those two. There's also one um, where he talks about, the Buddha is talking about 
how the path unfolds. And I'm just going to read this sequence. With the arising of faith, a person visits a teacher and grows close to him. Growing close, he lends ear. Lending ear, he hears the Dhamma. Hearing the Dhamma, he remembers it. Remembering it, he penetrates the meaning of it. Penetrating the meaning, he comes to an agreement through reflection. There being an agreement through reflection, desire arises. With the arising of desire, he becomes willing. Willing, he contemplates. Contemplating, he makes effort. Through effort, he realizes the ultimate meaning of the truth with his body and sees it by penetrating it with discernment. That's a Tanjef translation, not a Bhikkhu Bodhi translation. So if you have the printed book, you'll see it slightly differently. So we don't need to go through all of those steps, but I want to talk you through the process. Um, the beginning, he says, there's faith. You know, you start with, and this makes sense, if you don't have any sense that something is going to be valuable, why would you do it? You shouldn't do it. If you have, sense, if you have no sense that something would be valuable, don't do it. But he says, if you have any kind of faith, then you might begin to listen to the Dharma. Here we all are. You lend ear, you decide to listen. What comes after that, though, is interesting. It says, he penetrates the meaning, and then he comes to a reflective understanding. So you don't just hear the Dharma, you then, you're allowed to think about it. (laughs) You're allowed to reflect on it and consider, does this make sense to me? Does this resonate in my heart? So you have the faith, you listen, then you check. So there's both sides there. And he says when those both are there, then desire arises. And this word desire is not not the clinging, grasping kind of desire. Um, it's actually the word is uh, chanda. <laughs> and that is a desire for liberation. It's a um, zeal is sometimes how it's translated, but that's also sometimes a loaded word for people. And then he becomes willing to make effort. So th- when we have that sudden sense of, yes, this actually really, this really has value. I really feel that this is working for me. That's when we're going to sit on the cushion. That's when we're going to be willing to sit down for half an hour and not move like everyone did in this room tonight. That's actually pretty big. That's pretty far along <laughs> in the steps when you get to making the effort to actually sit. Just so you know, <laughs> you're done quite well. And then through sitting, through that effort, um, there comes the insight that can lead to liberation. So I like this because it has it bal- has that balance. It says that all of that has to be there. The heart's willingness, the mind's being convinced and willing, and then the exertion of the body and the listening to the, you know, following the instructions. The Buddha himself did both. He had, um, he had to have faith. Well, first of all, he left his comfortable life to go off and practice. There's already a lot of faith in that. But the first thing he did after he left was he went to teachers that were known in, in the time. He went to concentration teachers, learned how to concentrate his mind, and discovered that that wasn't quite what he was looking for. He was looking for the end of suffering. He was not looking for concentration necessarily. And so he discovered that what he had learned from them didn't, lead to the result he wanted. And he actually had to decide, wow, I don't have a teacher. 
Um, I'm going to have to do something else. He then did ascetic practices, self-mortification practices, which he also decided wasn't right. And then he really had to have faith because he had run out of all the practices available. And he sat. that was when he sat down under the tree and vowed not to move until he could see through everything and, and became free. But that's a lot of faith. <laughs> but along the way, notice, there was consideration. There was inquiry. He had to decide what these concentration teachers taught me isn't the goal I'm aiming for. He doesn't know what he was aiming for because he wasn't there yet, but he, he felt, no, this isn't it. And then he checked out the ascetic practices and he discovered that they didn't lead to the end of suffering. In fact, they led to more suffering. So again, so we use that quality that he talked about in the Kalama Sutta. Does this lead, when you practice it, carry it out and practice it, does it lead toward or away from suffering? And you realize, oops, it leads toward. So the Buddha didn't go on a straight path. But then he realized, oh, maybe there's another way. And he found, he found the way, and now he teaches it, he taught it to us. So I think we can be inspired by this. We don't, it's not easy to understand how to navigate this path. It's not easy to know how to do that. Even as dedicated practice develops, we're going to be called upon to have faith in the next step unfolding. We're going to keep developing over time. Experience gets different as meditation deepens. And uh, life can start to flow in unexpected ways. That's all right. It was probably going to flow in unexpected ways anyway. How many people in this room expected to be where you are in your life today? (laughs) I don't see any hands. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, this happens. But as we, you know, as we continue to do this practice and inquire into our life, there is the possibility of um, changing and honing and clarifying our intentions so that our engagement remains strong and things keep unfolding. It takes a lot of faith and strength, I think, to, to keep doing this. There's a nice uh, phrase again, from the suttas, where the Buddha talks about a person becoming independent in the Dharma. And, or usually it says, independent in the teacher's dispensation. And what that means is that, not that we don't need to practice anymore, but that we, we gain the ability to use the teachings in ways that are beneficial for us, to check our own practice. Is it too far this way? Is it too far that way? Um, and that's the point where it said a person has gone beyond doubt. It doesn't mean they're done with practice, but it means they have the ability to um, to know when they need to just give over and have faith and to know when they need to check and say, no, this isn't right, I'm going to impose my will and say this, I'm going to go in a different direction. So I guess I would... I would like to wind down all of my talking and maybe just I'm going to pose a couple of inquiries for you that you can sit with throughout the week if you want or maybe you know if they're meaningful to you and then we'll have some time for discussion or questions. So first of all in your own practice and life 
when has it been good to just accept? When was it good to just trust the process? Maybe, for example, there have been times when something amazing opened up for you that you could never have imagined and which your judgmental mind would probably have rejected. But, but something opened and somehow you went with it. I can think of a time, for example, when I decided to do an academic program. Like I was kind of getting a little bored in my job and I saw this thing for this announcement for an academic program. I've read something online about it and it intrigued me. And within, I didn't, I didn't like rationally go and then, you know, figure out how I was going to do all this. But a few months later, I was applying for it. I was doing it. I just, something just opened. And that was so obvious that I should just go do that. Um, and I didn't expect it. And probably if I'd thought about it, I wouldn't have done it because it wasn't that wise financially. But it kind of worked out in the end. So it was good that I just accepted that and just trusted it. So that's one inquiry. When has that happened for you in your life? Here's another one. When did you need to dig in more and make assessments and ask questions? Were there times when you were a little bit too gullible of just believing something and going with it? And maybe um, maybe you hovered around on the surface believing that something magic would happen? I'm sure something magic will happen if I just go along. And you realize now, looking back, that you could have engaged more and maybe gotten a, a deeper experience or some better understanding if you had had some inquiry along with it and not just accepted the surface. So I think, I think over time, these different qualities are going to balance. I think mind, the job of mindfulness is really bigger than what our conscious mind can know. I think developing a mindfulness practice, there's something else that starts to harmonize and you know, resonate in us and start to balance these qualities so that we, we actually strengthen our faith and our inquiry, I think, at the same time. It's not like you need to say, okay, I'm only going to develop faith right now. You could, it's a good thing to do that if you need more of that. But I think over time, you're really strengthening both of them. And that, that balance starts to happen um, naturally between the, the trust and the, the inquiry. So that's, that's the dimension that we looked at tonight. Um, how we approach practice, how we engage with the process. And in, you know, in, in the other weeks, we're going to look at other dimensions. There's so many dimensions that balance in this practice. It's amazing. But I'll stop there and just um, yeah, ask if anything has come up for you in this or uh, if you have any questions. You can also ask questions about your practice. Um, it doesn't have to be only about this particular topic. I'm happy to ask, answer any questions about mindfulness or practice.
and Sharon has the microphone. Okay. Thank you, Kim. It was a very helpful talk. Um, I find when I, if I am in a busy day and then I sit down to meditate and I sit down cold, kind of, <laughs> you know, then it's hard to get settled in my mind. And um, I'm thinking that if I, you know, did a little bit of mindfulness, pra- you know, like, I mean, like a yoga practice maybe, or sometimes if I want to um, read a book that would be somewhat inspirational before I sit down, mm-hmm. that I, you know, would benefit more from practice. Oh, so uh, some kind of a transition into sitting. Yeah. Is that a question or? Um, yeah, just uh, what, or if you have any other um, comments on that. Oh, I think it's, first of all, I think it's valuable to notice, um, you know, to notice in yourself that this might be a helpful way to engage. I think it's fine to stack the odds in our favor <laughs> as far as sitting, as long as we're not doing it obsessively, you know, because part of sitting is that you sit with whatever the weather is at the time. And if we're only willing to sit when our mind is calm, it, we won't have as much benefit. <laughs> um, but, you know, that said, it's fine to, yeah, to um, make a transition of some kind. You might try 108 bows, you know. <laughs> I'm using that example. You know, there is actually a tradition that does that. Korean Zen is, um, uh, and it's it's actually quite a. I know somebody who does that, and they say that um, for him it has the effect of being a concentration practice because you got to count to 108 first of all, and um, uh, you know do this repeated physical. They do. They're doing prostrations, um, and. It's, um, he says it's a great concentration practice. I can imagine, um, I know I've talked with other people who say that bowing for them is um, uh, really an act of humility and generosity, of placing the head below the heart, essentially, which can be important for those of us in a rational society. So just as an FYI, I'm, I'm not being flippant with that example. It is actually a real practice. And I'm not suggesting it for you necessarily, but it's... Um, I think it's fine to take a transition and then be mindful about that. Be mindful to the degree to which that's helping you to settle in and the degree to which it's becoming sort of a crutch or an attachment. Probably it'll work for a while and then you'll need to change. (laughs) But it's good to, yeah, it's good. Okay, I'll give... Oh, sorry. It's okay. Um, Sharon and then Rajesh. Yeah. (laughs) Um, two things came to mind uh, relative to going with a situation that I didn't, well, yeah, that I, I didn't know what the outcome would be. And one was when I first met my uh, current husband. <laughs> and... Um, um, I wasn't. I, I was ambivalent about whether to um, connect with him, other than this first meeting, this social occasion that we were both at. And something inside said, because I had some judgments about him. Right? I mean, you meet a person for the first time. <laughs> there's some judgments, and and something inside said, stay open. 
Um, so three three years later, we were married. Um, another, but uh, there have been two occasions where I have studied with teachers for extended periods of time. Uh, one was for five years, and the other one was for fourteen years, and. Um, I, I couldn't explain why, but it was apparent at some point that it's time for me to move on mm-hmm. from yeah. from this person as my teacher. I still have great respect for them and what they provided for me in my spiritual growth, and um, and I didn't know what was coming next, but. Um, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't like a thought out logical thing. It was sort of an intuitive prompting of some kind. It's a beautiful example, mm-hmm. and that's just there's little to add to that. But I'll just make the point that throughout our life, we're going to go through many different stages. Whether you know we, that's obvious in our physical life, where we've gone from babyhood to childhood to adulthood and to elder, perhaps. And it's true in our spiritual life, too. And moving on from a teacher doesn't mean that we've learned everything that they can teach us or that we've become superior to them. And I know you didn't say that. I'm just pointing this out. There can just be a sense of, okay, the next thing I need to learn is going to come from someone else. So thank you for the clarity on that. Um. So sometimes I uh, reach into situation when I realize that that mind itself has a lot of limitation. I cannot even trust my mind. Mm. And uh, at that point, I feel like uh, like sort of like uh, there is no like I feel like there is a dead end, and uh, it's, it's sort of. Uh, extremely neg- negative and hopeless that like I, I it's like feeling of like uh, as if you you don't have anything to progress mm. and uh, yeah that's one situation and second my second sort of thought or question is that sometimes like uh, if uh, if we like ask questions, does it necessarily uh, increase our belief? Or it, it, I mean, sometimes I feel like even if we ask questions, we don't. I mean, we we some most of the time we end up in having more questions. And mm, it never mm. ends. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. These are both really good points. Let's let's take them one at a time. So this first situation that you mentioned, um, you said that you had approached the limitation, you felt that your mind had a limitation in sometimes you feel that, and that um, I think you said it can't be trusted. Is that what you said? Yeah. I mean- yeah. First time I realized was that I was reading a book called Tao of Physics. Okay. 
So basically it, it talks about like some sort of relation between spirituality and modern physics. So so because I was interested in both, so I, I this found, uh, this book I found very interesting. I started reading and like I couldn't finish the book, and I even started feeling it when I, I couldn't even finish the book because I realized that even what I'm understanding may not be true. So. Mm. <laughs> this is a really important and interesting point in practice, and. I'll, a lot of people will reach a point like this, maybe not from reading a book, but maybe from, maybe, or maybe from sitting on the cushion, or maybe just life experience, things are unfolding in a certain way, and we get to a point where, yeah, there, it can feel like, um, you use the word dead end also. I guess I would offer the hope that there's no such thing as a dead end <laughs> in practice. There's always... Um, there's always something, but we can't necessarily see it unfolding. So there's always something going on, maybe underneath. Um, and if if it's possible, you didn't ask for advice, but I'll say that when I have felt places like that, um, the degree to which we can just open to the stuckness is the most helpful, I have found. It's like, wow. I I can't go forward, I can't go backward, I can't stand where I am. <laughs> wow, what does that feel like? And that in itself is actually a slight opening because the awareness of a situation like that is itself, is mindfulness, it's a progression of the path. So it might take a while for something to shift, but it will. It's also helpful to talk to a teacher at that point if you're feeling, you know... And to remember that another dimension is to remember compassion and say, wow, this is a difficult practice. It's really hard to be in a place like this and just feel some softness for your for your mind. Does that help at all? Yeah, so I, uh, my question is that at that point I feel completely demotivated and I don't, yeah. I don't feel to do anything. Like so you, you, this doesn't have to be conscious. Like, okay, I know what to do now. I've got to that stuck point. I'm going to apply. You know, I know the mind doesn't work that way when it's in the place. So this is a place for that first angle that we talked about, actually, more about the, the trust and the willingness. And conditions always change. There's nothing that will remain the same. And so the conditions that are sticking the mind have to change eventually even without motivation. <laughs> that's, the, that's the good news, in a sense. Um, but it's not easy. And if you want to talk more, I'm, I'm happy to, to talk with you. Um, the part about the questions, you said, oh, what about asking questions? Doesn't that maybe lead to more questions? Um, the, what, bring, what comes to mind, you can see if I'm on target here, what comes to mind when you ask that is to say that the part of the mind that can ask questions is only part of the mind. <laughs> and to ask a question, we need to formulate something verbally. And I found in my own mind that there are things that can't be formulated verbally very well. And so whatever it is that asks a question is not 
guaranteed not to be the full extent of my mind. It's good to ask questions, and um, sometimes that helps, and sometimes it doesn't, and that's just part of the process also. Um, in fact, I w- I'm not a big question asker, to be truthful. Um, I prefer... I ask questions kind of in an internal way, like I'll sit on the cushion and maybe I'll, I'll be inquiring wordlessly into what's happening. But I'm not usually the person who raises their hand, sometimes, but uh, it's, uh, so far the pattern hasn't been that. And I don't worry about it too much. You know, it's there doesn't necessarily come in words, come in the form of words. So that's just one more dimension of practice, is the degree to which we are, at this stage in our practice, asking a lot of questions or not. And that's all okay. We can also check our motivation in asking questions. If you want a practice to do, you can ask, why am I about to ask this question? Am I seeking information? Like, I really want to know the answer to this, and then I'll feel relaxed. Am I wanting to be noticed? Some people ask questions because they want to they wanna show how much they know. <laughs> some people ask questions because they want attention from the teacher. Um, some people ask questions because they want to trip up the teacher. They have a sort of a aggressive attention, intention. So it's nice to know what your intention is in asking a question. Um, and who knows, maybe the answer is going to be, going to give you something different than you thought you wanted to get. <laughs> All right. We we have time for a little Thank more. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, some over here. Thank you. Carrying on on that point, um, we've just experienced a, a prolonged exposure to Stephen Batchelor's thinking, um, and that's uh, right. He was trained in Korean Zen, and one of the things that was a significant part of his practice was asking the question, what is this? Oh, yes, what is this? And I'm reminded of the fact that the Buddha simply didn't answer certain questions. So there are questions that we can formulate quite well in language that do not further, to take a Quaker term. You know, they, they, they don't really help. And there may, in fact, not be a good answer to some of the questions that we can formulate. And maybe we just need to sit with wanting an answer. Just that longing. Just that wordless longing and hold that just stay in that place and nurture that have a great deal of compassion for ourselves in that there may be tears there may be energy there may be vibration but as long as you maintain that curiosity, that inquiry. I love that term that you used, Kim. Um, About what is going on inside 
your body and mind and outside your head, as Kim said, everything changes. The, the conditions change. What is arising and passing away is continually arising and passing away. Can we stay in tune with that and that's enlightenment i mean when when we just stay present for what is happening and the process that's unfolding as us as well as outside of us, staying present for that without reacting without wanting to keep it the way it is or make it other than the way it is, but just letting it be the way it is, is a moment of enlightenment. I see and we're having a channeling of Stephen Batchelor. Yeah. <laughs> so we can nurture those moments and stitch them together and, and that can be a vibrant practice. Thank you. Did you... Thank you. Thank you, Kim. Uh, you um, juxtaposed faith with inquiry. Another typical kind of juxtaposition would be faith versus doubt. Is mm. one of the hindrances. Um, reminded of Joseph Goldstein's observation that doubt can be especially tricky because it can masquerade as wisdom. And you're thinking. I'm. This really isn't working for me. I can see this isn't really the right thing, and so forth. And we we feel like we're being very sophisticated in turning away from the practice and, and setting aside the faith. Um, not sure where this is going, but I'm. The examples you give of faith are the faith required to continue with a practice, to continue doing something, as opposed to the kind of faith that says. I'm going to adhere to this proposition for which I have no evidence except some authority that's that's given it to me. And that that, that distinction doesn't quite work because I can always shift things around and say the proposition is that this practice is going to be beneficial. But um, I just I, I guess this is just where my thoughts are going. I'm not sure there's a question in there. So. Mm. Um. I appreciate that there's a lot of ways to formulate this juxtaposition. I um, I would question faith versus doubt in that doubt is um, closing, whereas the other things that you've offered, faith and wisdom or faith and, um, what else did you say? Um, well, we've looked at inquiry. Yeah. Um, those Those are things that are both helpful and can grow together, and the point is that they should both be strong, actually. For a person who's very well-developed, faith is very strong, and inquiry and wisdom are very strong, whereas um, doubt is a detriment, skeptical doubt, at least, as as a hindrance or as a fetter, um, is a detriment to the practice. So I think what we're aiming to compare in this series is things that are... um, that are all helpful, but need to be done in the right measure and in the right time. Yeah. Okay, I think we're at the end. Thank you, everyone.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.